I feel like this is going to be a good show. You do? I do. Because, what gives you that feeling? Um, what is? What are we talking about today? Oh, um, uh, Under the Skin, which we watched last night. Yeah, we're not doing that. Um, <laughs> so <We're> not- <laughs> we had, we got a really... Oh, it was so good. So good. We got a fun, supportive message from a fan of the show, Dave. Okay. Recent alum. Mm-hmm. Um, it came by way of Facebook, but... I think I shared it. This with was you. a Facebook message to you. Yeah, and I think I shared with you the content of it that was relevant to the show, mm-hmm. and it was just like, "Hey, I really enjoy it. It's it gives me some of the fun I remember from law school, and that that's kind of neat." Yeah, yeah, I like that because law school is a really intense experience, and it can be a very mentally um, challenging and profound experience, right? Because you have to rethink a lot of things and then continue to think about a lot of challenging things. So, right. That's so I like that people feel like when they listen to what we do, they sort of feel reminded of some of the positive experiences like that when they were in school. Yeah. And maybe a show like this and and other things in one's life. And I think, you know, everybody should aspire to, you know, have a full, rich, intellectual life. And um, maybe maybe with that description, maybe they shouldn't be listening to our show. But uh, (laughs) um you know, I, I, that, that's one aspect I think of, uh, the grass is always greener kind of thing. You know, you get, you, you're in law school, especially in your third year and you just can't wait to get out and do real stuff in the world, especially if you've been a student forever. Yeah. And then I think a lot of people after a while in practice, they miss elements of law school, you know, the freedom to think about things that, um, don't apply to their current docket of cases, the freedom to take the time to learn new things and be exposed to things serendipitously that they didn't know they'd be interested in, but turn out to be really cool. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, if you're in practice and you don't have that opportunity professionally, you know, in, in the course of your everyday practice, um, maybe a show like this helps a little bit to, to round that out. And, and, and I'm a big believer that, um, that even if you're doing the same um, kind, even if you're working in the same genre all the time, that exposing your stu- yourself to stuff outside of that genre can help, you know, bring, you know, because, you know, I'm a big believer that, um, I, I think what I'm saying this morning is that I'm a big believer in things, Joe. Which is, which is <laughs> over great. And over. Great. You're not as big a believer as I am. I weigh a lot more than you, so I'm a much bigger believer. But, right. Um, but I think it's great. I mean, I, I love that about you, that you're a big believer. <laughs> I'm a big believer. That's so, um, that's so important. Yeah. So this is an early morning show, listeners, so, you know. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, we usually the, record many hours after this. Yeah, after I've had a chance to wake up a little bit more. Yeah, Clearly, just, I've not woken up enough. But, you know, you, you see, law is a discipline where ideas are repeated throughout different subjects. I think we've covered this before in the podcast. Right. Um, and but sometimes those, seeing things in a new way in a different area will help you in your yeah, own Yeah, they're not, they're not, re- I don't think they're repeated. I think they just rhyme. And the, and that's important because it means that this the a slightly different version of this idea is somewhere else, surrounded by some slightly different material. Which is why if you get to expose yourself, if you expose yourself to these different things, you'll make other richer connections. Yeah, like oh, when you put that idea over in that other, it was sort of like if you move a paint chip from your living room where your wall is dark to your dining room where your wall is light, the very same paint chip will look different. Yeah. So you. That's right. So you could think think oh wow so the impression this color makes on me has changed um well now it's like it's not even the same color it's the one next to it on that you know how paint chips now they come in this strip of like a bunch of different colors that are all related 
Right. It's like different saturation levels of a single shade. Right. Like, well, now it's like I jumped over one and I went into a different room. Mm hmm. Well, you got to have that. You got to set that experience up for yourself, Mm -hmm. especially when you leave school. Once you leave school, you're really the one who's in charge of making that happen. Yeah, I I totally didn't intend to talk about this. Have I mentioned on the show before or even talked to you about my idea for um, um, like a senior's degree or something like this? The idea of coming back to school for a year in your like 50s. Have I ever mentioned this to you? You haven't mentioned it. And I think it's uh, I think it's very intriguing. So it, it. it, it kind of grows out of a guess I have about why it is that a lot of people do some of their most creative, interesting work when they're young. And there, there probably are some, you know, I'm, there are some neuroscientific reasons for, for this, right? That um, the way our brains work. But, um, but I also think that, um, y- you know, when you, when you first come out of school or graduate school, um, you have, you know, you, you come into whatever field you're working in, whether it's business or something else, having just had courses in like organic chemistry or in physics or, you know, literature, and you're being taught by people who have, are immersed in current scholarship in those areas. So new ideas, right? So those ideas in other areas, you know, you learn about the latest geological theories or the latest, uh, chemical theory you know you're learning things today in high school in chemistry that you know certainly my parents didn't learn in college in chemistry you know there's yeah. a whole different paradigm you know yeah. the, the dna revolution is because events know. continued to happen in those fields right so so they moved biology I won't say looks progressed different. or regressed or whatever they moved they moved right and and they're filled with different kinds of ideas and 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 i think uh, i'm not going to say i'm a big believer but i do think that uh ideas have a kind of shape to them um uh, and, and, and these, you know, the idea in chemistry or, and in, in the intersection between chemistry and biology that is, uh, that grows out of understanding how DNA basically works. And, and as we know more about, you know, how, um, as we've learned more about, uh, how hereditary information is passed on, I know this is, you know, this is not like in the last 10, 20 years, but we've sequenced it. you know, even if you learn about sequencing, right, the whole approach to understanding that stuff, uh, those ideas, I think, have a certain shape to them that then carry over when you do something new. Like you come into like forming a business or thinking about law or even, you know, doing mathematics, knowing about, you know, the techniques that were successful in sequencing DNA or like all, all of those ideas have shapes to them, and those shapes carry over into other fields, and you have a new set of tools, a new set of ideas that you can deploy. And so there's, you know, the new, the newly minted graduate who knows nothing, almost nothing, about the specific tasks of the career which is in front of him or her is equipped with all this knowledge that no one else who does have that experience really, you know, has, Right. They're, 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 they are just filled uh, to the brim, hopefully, right, if, they've, if learning has gone on in college. So hold on. So the person, yeah. who, the person who knows about the tasks is the person who's like five years ahead of them. Exactly. And therefore, their college education And the is, person in power is like 20 years ahead of right. them. Right. And so the college educations that the five-year and the 20-year person had were, of course, different. Different, because right. Because the fields keep moving. Right. So the, per- the recent grad has had a different college experience than either of those two other people have had. Right. What they have that the grad doesn't have is actual um, 
in situation experience with the techniques and the questions and the tasks right. that that are now at hand. Right. So in the job, yes. And so the experienced people, you know, the uh, the field is defined by um, the paradigms, the symbols, and a certain kind of talk that goes along that that just is what that field is, right? right. And it's a product of all the people who have come before. The person who comes into the field, right? is filled with a bunch of different ideas about how people should talk about problems, different kinds of paradigms, and, you know, and different kinds of symbols, if you like, right? That and they may overlap ideas. with the, the five-year or the 10-year or the 20-year person. Right. They may overlap uh, either a little or a lot. Right. But if they don't overlap a lot, let's say they overlap a little. Let's say there's been a really big change in the last few years. Yeah. Then it's interesting because they are actually now not actually confronting the same tasks. Right. The tasks are, in a sense, profoundly different because they're being approached by someone with a, with a quite different set of tools and questions and ways right. of thinking about it. And we're things. just talking about inputs, the way people come into the field. And, of right. course, society is changing, and so the kinds of problems the field needs to solve are changing. Changes, but right. just on the input side, um, you know, the new person comes in and says, well, why haven't you ever done it this way? And, you know, so what, what, what's the answer to that? We don't do it that way. <laughs> right? So that person is usually frozen out for a period uh, right. unless the field is such that it's – utterly clear that the freshest newest ideas have to be given room to breathe and win right and then you know so right. maybe some tech fields are a little bit like that but even there there's you know this old guard new guard old guard is a new guard you even say that new guard old, old guard upstart kind of thing yeah or dynamic. sort of like yeah old guard vanguard maybe right. you could say new guard so anyway the idea was um that some kind of sabbatical where you know so would society benefit enough to justify the expense of people in their you know mid 50s or something like that especially as life expectancies increase and people mm. want to stay engaged or maybe they even want a second career to to hit the pause button and go in a full time um you know near residential version of university again yeah. to get a second degree where they take not you know they don't specialize in their courses they get a new liberal a renewal of a liberal arts education um and not a full four-year thing right? right but a year you know uh a year or 18 months or, or six months i don't know right. i haven't really you know and it's not really achievement oriented i think it's you know you're writing papers you're not doing exams because you're trying to reflect on right. what's, what's new about what you're what you're seeing and how you're engaging with people right and new in new in comparison to your your pre-existing, like what you walked in the door with as right. that accomplished professional. Right. And yet things have cha- continued to change. Yeah. And a lot of professions have continuing education requirements. Yeah. Law certainly does, you know, and, and, and my jurisdiction, in which I'm admitted Connecticut, we don't have that requirement, which is, which is nice, but a lot of them do. I think Georgia has a continuing legal education requirement sure. and uh, other jurisdictions do, but those courses are often like, Let's drill down into the latest, you know, bit of law about topic X or Y, right? right? It doesn't tend to question that there is a topic X. Right. Instead, it says, okay, let's look at the last 12 months of developments in topic X. Right. From a very inside X perspective. And it's certainly not a four-year course in, you know, understanding quantum theory for the non-science major. Right. <laughs> right? And so I guess, you know, part of my claim is, and this is a guess, and that... We might be better off if more people, you know, later in life took that kind of thing. Here are the, you know, if you went back to college now, here's the stuff you would learn that you were never taught when you were in college because the world has changed. Right. And we're going to fill you your head with all kinds of new ideas 
And so, you know, you can kind of put it into second, you know, you can, you can shift gears when you get out of this program and you will now, I don't, so will this increase kind of the creativity of people as they get later in life? And I'm thinking, you know, somewhat selfishly of myself, I would like to, to do that at some point, right? Yeah. Go back again. And, um, of course I'm an academic and, and, you know, maybe there's a clearer case for, for doing that as an academic. And I have the freedom to read on my own and audit courses that right. others don't, um, Different question if what, whether this would benefit an insurance executive or something like that in his or her fifties or or even early sixties or you know I don't, I don't know what the you know as as life expectancies change and our expectations about staying active change and mental activity I, you know I don't you know I don't have a good sense of that I'm I just have the um, kind of the uh, abide I do have the abiding sense that there would be a real benefit a real human benefit to individuals and and the guess that there might be a real social benefit yep. to this. I, um, I share your intuition. All right. Well, that's it for this week. Um, Not, no. yeah. <laughs> Wait, so, we, so that was all based on the feedback from, from Dave. Yeah. Cool. Hmm. Um, I also want to update folks just in case they haven't been following the monkey selfie story as closely as I have that yeah. uh, as it happens, and I don't think the two are related in any immediate way, um, but um, was the, this based on feedback as well, or just no? Okay. Um, the Copyright Office, uh, which is an uh, an agency within the Library of Congress, so interestingly, it's a legislative branch agency. A little odd, rather than being in the executive branch, but there you have it. Uh, the Copyright Office, of the United States. Thank you, Darcy. Has uh, released a draft of a big policy manual that hasn't i think the second edition is from like 20 or 25 years ago it's been a long time right and it's called the compendium of copyright practices i think or something like that. right we'll can't, keep it in the show can't notes. wait hmm? can't wait for this people are lining up like for a new harry potter book absolutely and happily for them it's available as a pdf from the copyright <laughs> office website right so it's like you don't it's not even like you have to go down to your yeah but store. You, for something like this you want the hardcover version uh, you can order it right and then you get it but in the meantime mm-hmm because it's burning a hole in your head inside to see what's in there, uh, you get to turn to page 56, where you will learn that uh, in a list of specific examples supporting the assertion or illustrating the assertion that uh, there is no copyright in things produced by other than humans. So uh, if a, if a, an animal hits the shutter on a, camera and takes a picture that's not copyrightable it's in the public domain this is the thing i asserted the I, I other saw day because you emailed me about this right go and, ahead finish, and, yeah. and the list of examples the first example in the list is right a you know a photo taken by a monkey <laughs> that's like that's the first example was the entire compendium uh was the entire idea for this uh did it get off the ground once the monkey selfie problem <laughs> became evident? Is this the Here, here's why i don't think so because the book is like 1200 pages yeah. Uh, and as I'm sure it's been in the work for many years. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's just a happy Maybe accident. it just really lit a fire under, under yeah, the really, office. They're like, we got to get this well, shipped. I, so I saw this and, and so, you know, so, uh, so um, a... Just want to add that to the monkey creative, selfie fire. Well, creative work created by a non-human is not copyrightable. Is that the idea? Yeah, I don't know why you would put creative at the front of it. Well, it's work, precisely whatever. because we don't have any. We, we we the system isn't designed to try to affect or even understand 
you know, is the monkey being creative when it takes a selfie? Yeah, I was just injecting. I was just assuming that it would meet Feist. But forgetting all that, just the point is a work created by something other than a human is not copyrightable. Correct. Um, But to me, this is, um, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on it uh, today, but um, I'd like to at some point. Maybe, uh, and and deal with that other copyright question we got uh, a little a little while ago. Mm. Um, it it just restates the question because sure. because the question is in that monkey selfie picture. What did the photographer who put the cameras out do? Right, right. and it's uh, we ha- and we did we don't the reason why we're not going to talk about it at great length today is because we already did right. We already talked about yeah. in part like the the is the monkey in what sense is the monkey an instrument an instrumentality of the photographer? Right, exactly. Uh, so I don't think this solves that, does it? No, it doesn't solve it. But what it does indicate is that um, one of the important official actors in U.S. copyright law is currently of the belief, currently has reached the legal belief, yeah, and is going to act on it by, for example, refusing attempts to register the copyright. Right, and this is the office where you go to do that. But does it? I don't. Does it definitively solve that? Because the because what the phot- photographer is going to say, and I gave. I think a week, I gave right, this example. No, they, last. Er, they erred in refusing to register it. I'm going to sue them to make them register it. We're going to go to court. A court is going to adjudicate whether they're required to register it because my view of the law is right and their view of the law is wrong. Of course, that can happen. Yeah, but even under their view of the law, I could say although the monkey uh, pulled, uh, you know, hit the shutter button. I'm the one who created the work. And, and yeah, their so rule, factual, even under their rule, it doesn't... So, great. So, you could have a fact dispute about what is the claim I'm, that I'm making. And right. Precisely. It's just yet another area in the law where the general concept of proximate causation rears its head. Yes. Ha- however, what I do think it... Do- Here's what I think it clears up. There was in the press, when the monkey selfie story broke, there was loose discussion by yeah, some right. people in the press which we talked about last the week, monkey last owns time. the copyright yeah. no the monkey does not that the what so what the copyright office's conclusion is doing is channeling us into the two discussions we just had yeah either a fact question about the monkey's role as an instrumentality of the photographer with the with the photographer's intention right that's one debate you have then you yeah. have the other debate well let's talk about is that the right legal rule non-humans can't be authors yeah Maybe that is the right legal rule under copyright law in the United States. Maybe it's not. Let's talk about it. Yeah. Right. So the policy is insisting that we have those two conversations. I got a great guest in my head for uh, a show on how the law treats sentient non-humans. Mm. Who is that guest? I, you I'm, don't want to say. Not, I'm not going to say. You I'm not going to say because. But you need to tell me at some point so I can try to book them. Of course. Of course. I, I think, you know, if, if listeners, you would like a show on that. Um, I, th- I think it could be really interesting because there's some people who, who believe, uh, s- some believe one way, some believe another way about whether, say, animals should should be recognized as yeah. participants in the legal system and I'm not just objects. I'm willing to say this question is so interesting. I don't care whether our listeners want us to talk, have a show like that. Oh, I, always, I only uh, care about the listeners, Joe. I, I, in a sense, don't care about them at all. Um, um, I want us to have a conversation. We think it's really interesting and fun. This one would be really interesting and fun. Right. Let's have it. Okay, but not now. Right, because that person... Because now, it, is there any other follow-up? Um, no. You know, the, the show that invented follow-up, they called it F.U. Really? Follow-up, yeah. Follow-up, yeah. F.U. That's a little aggressive. Well... A little hostile. Yeah. Hmm. Okay, so tell Oral me. Argument podcast me. at gmail.com. That's okay. where a person could email us. Yeah, and please and should. Please do. That's our fuel, as we've said. Let's get on with it, because we've got listeners who uh, have hit the 20-minute skip button 
and and are saying has the show not started yet but i think what we talked i enjoyed what we've talked about so far joe and as i said before when when i first hit the record button in the portion that i'll probably trim off at the beginning i wish i'd hit it 10 minutes earlier because we had a fascinating discussion before that we did it's all good here at partly about movies it's all good here at oral argument headquarters had a great conversation about critical points in life what it's like to be a 27 year old and a 40 year old i think it's a little earlier than 27 isn't it isn't it more like 24 25 yeah but i think it, it reaches a i think it reaches a a, a critical point at, at around 27 mm. where you feel like you've got to make a choice like there's got to be you know my mortality looms in front of me yeah in a way i had not not in a you know not in a like i can actually see the scythe right <laughs> kind of thing but i know that i've got that i don't have an infinite number of lives to live here i've got yeah the devil's you know. hot breath is really on your neck at that point yeah like a, the sense that 20s. I the sense I could be wasting everything yeah is is there okay well we're not going to recapitulate that whole conversation Good. now um, instead we're going to talk about Joe's favorite case is part, part two part deux <laughs> <laughs> uh, so and we already did talk about this case a little bit in the prior episode two episodes ago when we were talking about my favorite cases right and because this is the this is the Supreme Court case that finally settled the age-old question of what we should do with filled milk. Correct. Right? A really important... At the national level rather than at the state level. Right. State prohibitions on filled milk had already been upheld 20 years earlier in the case of Hebe, as the court right. indicates. Okay. And then, in the, of course, further filled in in the companion case of Jeebies. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't even... Indeed. What, this I was about to say this used to be a serious show about, but ne- not even not from really. episode zero. It's been yeah. a bunch of nonsense. All right, so uh, we're going to talk about Caroline products. Uh, yes. One of the certainly decided certainly the, the same su- day as Erie. Yeah, uh, and uh, which was April twenty fifth, nineteen thirty eight, uh, and uh, like Erie, uh, is about the courts is in, in significant part the reason why people still remember that and talk about the case. Is it because in significant part about the court's changing understanding of its role in American life yeah, uh, and in law more specifically? And unlike Erie, uh, it is actually in part the cementing of a few things that happened the prior year. Right. So it's a, it's a, it's a kind of putting the period and, and at the end of a sentence and underlining the sentence that this, so this is really going to stay in place. Right. And that was the court withdrawing from aggressive constitution based second guessing of social policy legislation passed by state and federal legislatures. Right. Uh, they had done that in the past, the, the so-called Lochner era, uh, as people might've heard of it, uh, named after a case called Lochner against New York decided in 1905. Um, where the court was using the due process clause of the 14th or 5th Amendment to block either state or national legislation dealing with um, market regulation and other forms of social policy legislation. Things like maximum hour law, minimum wage law, other workplace safety laws, um, the sort of stuff that we now think of as sort of bread and butter legislative issues. Right, right. It's just economic regulation. Yeah. You'd be surprised uh, to hear a court, you'd be surprised to hear maybe uh, 
uh, if you're not a lawyer, that there was a time when the United States Supreme Court had firmly set its face against virtually all of it and said, this is this violates the Constitution. And- and um, on, uh, with the sense, and so this had been a judicial and theoretical debate for you know years. I think it became, you know, and, and not being a story, I'm kind of guessing here, but it certainly became a because uh, neither a, of us are it reached a political crisis point um, during the New Deal, right? Right, where where this reasoning not only you know was was no longer just blocking um, regulations that a lot of people thought were a good idea. Uh, in light of the changing face of the American economy, you know, the Industrial Revolution, the nature of, of government regulation and private enterprise was dramatically changed with the Industrial Revolution and the kinds of protections people thought they wanted from government were changing. The nature of free markets changed. The nature of labor and its value changed. So all of that was a uh, – that discussion was occurring. People were debating Lochner well before – these cases but the, uh, of course yeah but the effect of of this approach to law was was to completely block the new deal or, or large aspects of it right and right. so this this case is um part and, of a series reserve, of cases bl- yeah. block, it blocked it in a really in a really specific way it blocked it because it was legislative so some people will occasionally say in a in a manner of speaking that i think is sloppy uh and, and so worth of being a little tidier about. So so you could say, oh, what the court is doing is blocking economic regulation. I don't think that's quite right. What the court is doing is blocking legislative economic regulation. The court is, yeah. of course, not blocking itself from making economic regulation, which it was doing by deciding cases in a particular way. Sure. It's saying, no, okay, so the source you have to go to to find out what kind of regulation of markets is permissible is you have to go ask a court. Right, And they're going to adjudicate it either on a common law basis or on the basis of a statute that they have not struck down as being unlawful, which they'll do if it's uncongenial to their conception of how markets are supposed yeah, to work. Yeah, that's the thing. Yeah. So, so you wind up getting – it's not the, – the debate isn't the choice between regulating markets or not regulating them. Sure. It's the choice between judges regulating them and legislatures regulating them principally like who will play the principal role in in regulating and of course those two different institutions have very different skill sets very different capabilities and capacities etc uh and so this this set of cases is the wheel turning away from judicial market regulation to legislative market regulation right and and to prevent the nation from co- completely collapsing yeah and i as i've read them <laughs> i mean there are plenty of cases where the supreme court during this pre um, New Deal era would uphold bits of economic regulation. I think the point was that it picked and, and, and chose Correct. Uh, with a rather aggressive tool for examining legislation. Right. And, and that tool had various forms. It protect, you know, One was protecting the so-called liberty of contract, which they found inherent in the Fifth Amendment Due Process Clause. Um, the Equal Protection Clause could be used in the same way. Um, I think we've talked about it on the show before. If you, you know, one reading of the Equal Protection Clause is it requires everybody to be treated equally, which is just anathema to the very idea of law, which right. is in its nature makes distinctions. I think we're going to come back to this in a little bit later in the show. And the other uh, facet, or eight, another facet, maybe you have more, uh, was the um, the very construction of the Constitution, which gave to the legislature and therefore the federal government enumerated powers to act. Um, unlike the states, which had the residual police power and therefore could act in any way that advanced the public health, safety, welfare, or even morals, um, so long as they didn't violate a 
uh, a specific prohibition, whereas the federal government was thought to be one of limited powers, and you had to, you know, any bit of legislation had to be had to fit within one of the enumerated powers. Yeah. So and, how you describe the contours, how you understand the contours of that enumerated power, right, is going to translate directly into whether or not the national government can or cannot take certain steps, right? Um, and in and again with the in the era of aggressive judicial oversight of uh, social policy legislation, including economic legislation, you've got the, you're right, the court isn't striking down all these things by any means. Um, but it's very clear, I think the message is very clear that when legislatures act, they act basically at the sufferance of the judiciary. It is the judiciary that's very much getting the final word on what social policy measures are proper and what are not. Right. Um, in the, in a constitutional register. Yeah, and, that, and the Constitution gives to Congress the power to regulate interstate commerce. And this is the big one, right? This right. is like the, you know, some might see it as the, almost the loophole, which, um, you know, uh, what's the right metaphor? But anyway, it's it's the loophole that, that, Not, that maybe Congress could smuggle everything into because uh, that combined with a necessary and proper clause, which allows Congress to pass laws which are necessary and proper to the carrying out of the enumerated activities. Well, if you think, you know, that just buying anything on the market affects interstate commerce because it, you know, affects supply and demand and that has ripple of, in an interconnected economy. Right. Um, and the, in an economy even more interconnected in 19 whatever than in 17 right. whatever. Right. So, so you, instead of saying it's a loophole, you could say it's a forward looking power that's designed to grow and contract as the nature of the markets grow and contract. Right. So for years, the court had various doctrines and tried various ways to put limits on Congress's commerce power so so as to rule out the kind of butterfly flaps its wings theory of, of the Commerce Clause, that Congress can pretty much regulate anything because anything could affect interstate commerce at some point carried through the chains of causation. So here, proximate causation is kind of coming Very up again. Bad. And so <laughs> they try to direct indirect distinction or a um, manufacturing, what was the thing, a manufacturing things in place versus... Right. Mining wasn't interstate commerce because it's just the first step of getting something out of the ground. So right. it's more like manufacturing and less like shipping. Is right. shipping interstate commerce? Well, surely shipping something over state lines is interstate commerce. Right. Pretty much everyone would have to agree with that. Um, but you're right, drawing these indirect versus direct effects, um, trying to categorize activities, right? Famous 1922 case, baseball is not interstate commerce. Yeah. So it's outside the scope of the antitrust laws. Why isn't it interstate commerce? Well, people advertise over state lines to get ticket holders to buy tickets. People travel over state lines to see the baseball game. But the game itself isn't interstate commerce, says, guess who? Justice Holmes, right? Mm -hmm. no, normally, a person who gets put in the defer to Congress camp or right. interpret powers broadly camp, not so in this very famous Federal club, uh, federal league club, uh, excuse me, federal baseball club of Baltimore against National League and, and American League. Uh, it's like, oh, it doesn't look like commerce to me, which is kind of amazing, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, so, yeah, I mean, everyone kind of felt there should be limits. And, and you introduced new law students to this and you show them the enumerated powers and you talk about, and it, you, you talk about the, the role of the federal government and, and I think even, you know, otherwise very liberal law students see that and you think, well, there should be some limits here. There was clearly an intention to place limits on uh, the national uh, uh, power. But how is that going to be realized, right? Yeah. Uh, and 
the court for a while thought that it was going to be its role, and I think again now thinks that it's it, it the court should be the one to place hard limits on congressional power, else the Congress won't be responsible enough to limit its reach. You know, it will make criminal laws duplicative of state criminal laws because again, it's this butterfly flaps its wings theory of right. of, of of interstate commerce. The problem was that every one of these distinctions, this direct indirect distinction, this manufacturing or articles in place rather than articles in transit or whatever the hell it is uh that um these were somewhat blunt instruments uh no one could find the scalpel and the essence was that these doctrines prevented congress from reaching clearly national problems right national problems can arise out of aggregated local activities you know so you know the famous case um uh was uh uh, a person growing wheat for himself and his family on his farm, and it conflicted with a certain statute which basically prohibited this, right? And the question is, can Congress, can Congress's regulation reach locally grown wheat meant for local consumption? And Given that, the presence of the locally grown wheat for local consumption diminishes the demand that would otherwise be placed on the market, the interstate market for wheat. Right, and so it, and that, the court's answer was yes. Yes, because, Congress can do it. And, and there's a you know this and, is in Wickard versus Filburn, right. and there's a there's a a memo. Justice Jackson's memo goes along with this, uh, and and basically acknowledges this is giving up on judicial policing of enumerated powers in a way. Yeah, so you're saying both that Congress can do it, and you're saying and Congress pr- is the principal judge of whether Congress can do it. I mean, there's both a, a conclusion, but there's also an institutional implication. Right. That's part of that conclusion. And the obvious danger of that is it's a fox guarding the hen house sort of, of thing, right? Where Congress will want to aggrandize itself and and people think there has to be a limit. Right. And, but, and you can ask yourself, well, maybe the limit is people have to stand for election on a regular basis. Right. And if the social policy decisions those folks are making aren't to people's liking, they can decide to elect somebody else. Right. And the question is, why aren't the people through elections the right entities? Like, why are they not equipped to judge for themselves whether the national government is getting too big? But the, you know, the theory in Wickard was, or, or just, just to go back, well, that's a, you know, <laughs> going back to Wickard a second. I mean, it is the, uh, basically the adoption of the butterfly flaps its wing theory. I keep saying this, but it is the adoption of that theory. And it seems kind of, you know, some people ridicule it as going way too far. I think it's, celebrated more than it's ridiculed but it's certainly the subject of continuing debate right but the fact is that you know you know in in a country and maybe closer to the founding era where the ripples of commerce you know were more muted uh or muted more quickly as they got further from the source because there was less interchange correct Uh, Today, the butterflies' wing flaps really do reverberate through the economy. Absolutely. And people growing wheat at home, even though it's local, there are a lot. that's lots of butterflies flapping their wing. I'm carrying this analogy too far. Don't I always take this stuff too far, John? Sure, sure. Yeah. So this was a real problem. And, and, the, the, and so the response was, you know, when un, under all this kind of New Deal legislation meant to respond to an emergency, which is people starving and... Right. Yeah, when you say an emergency, uh, the nation's most profound economic emergency to date. Right. And is some abstract doctrine of division of powers under which we, you know, whether it's indirect or indirect, we, you know, these various kinds of blunt tools to try to police a limit on Congress, which don't necessarily map up directly to uh, the perceived problem. Are we going to use one of these tools 
in such a way that we get to the conclusion that despite the fact that we all acknowledge there's a national problem, Congress is disabled from using any conceivable tool to reach that, right? I mean, that's that's the essence of it. Like, whatever the Commerce Clause means, I think the principle in Wickard is that Congress has to be free to reach national problems um, and and to address them in sensible ways, right? And so the Necessary and Proper Clause and Commerce Clause are read together. This is not Caroline Products, but I think it's of a piece, right? Because this, uh, the Wickard case... Which is um, a few years after right. Caroline products, three uh, years after. West Coast Hotel, and, and this case, they're all, these are all um, decisions which unleash Congress. And the state legislatures. It, exactly, to reach um, economic problems uh, far more freely and yeah. to let the democratic process hold accountable uh, legislatures. So, and that's why it's such a powerful inversion of where the principal, who will be the principal author of market regulation? Will it be judges deciding cases or will it be legislatures passing statutes? And it's getting inverted in these, in a very small number of years, we, the court moves from one answer to the other of this question. And it, it is a great unleashing of legislative power. It's a great trimming back on judicial power. And, uh, and that I think that makes it quite a momentous period of time. Now, yeah. the the reason why Caroline product stands out for me as a favorite among these because there's you, you, why not pick Wickard as a favorite case or West Coast Hotel against Parish? That's the thirty seven case. Um, why Caroline products? Well, because it has something else. Yeah, uh, and the, the something else it has is in addition to putting the period at the end of the sentence about what the court, how the court sees itself as a reviewer of economic regulation. Um, this is not a hard case under the Commerce Clause uh, because it is definitely interstate commerce on virtually anybody's definition. It's and the I, interstate guess, shipment of things. Yeah, and I guess the argument was that, that Congress can't, under the guise of banning interstate shipments, essentially ban products. From sale, right? Because it was targeting this filled milk, this milk which the, I guess the the milk fats have been taken out, right? And, and injected like some vegetable fats have had been put in, right? Um, so right, they're not ban- so they're not prohibiting the interstate shipment of it because, for example, it's a volatile compound that could explode and injure the instrumentalities of interstate commerce, right? Like for the so it's not like a you can imagine Congress passing a statute. Um, this you, you can't transport this compound in a train car. Um, because it's too volatile, the train cars will tend to explode. Those explosions will tend to ruin the rail lines. Those right. ex- those ruined rail lines are now a blockage of interstate commerce rather than a smoothing of interstate commerce. Very different logic, right? Here it's, we ban this stuff, not because it's going to explode, right? In but commerce. because we don't want it to exist. Right. And one way to make sure it doesn't exist is prevent anybody from moving it across state lines. Now it's much less profitable to engage in the production of this substance, right? Than it was before, right? So yeah, you could say it's an end. It's using the interstate commerce power to achieve something other than of an opening up of interstate commerce itself. Yeah, but the court, yeah, and and the court just blows by this. Rejects uh, it completely. Rejects it completely (laughs) because the commerce clause is not going to be uh, any longer. 
uh, really. And I think they focus on the interstate shipment part here. So it's not right. as profound a, a rejection of the old Commerce Clause doctrine as uh, Wickard, certainly. And, and nor do I think it's original in this case. I don't think this case is the first case where no. they've sort of wrestled with that issue. Right. Uh, so the bigger the bigger questions are about, okay, even if it's valid under the Commerce Clause, you still can't violate some other constitutional limitation. And let me mention one that you might... Pro- yeah, well, I, I, I know you're going to get to due process. Can I just mention before you do that equal protection? Sure. There's something interesting in, in this case, um, you know, because it, it was raised. This is an equal protection violation because it's treating us like filled milk producers differently than, you know, regular milk producers. Or like margarine producers. Right. And who make a simulation of a dairy product using vegetable right. oil. And And so, okay, you're treating us differently. Courts do what you normally do or do what you ought to do and scrutinize whether that makes sense. Otherwise, it's a irrational discrimination, a wrongful discrimination. So, uh, and yeah, really make sure there's a good means to end fit for a valid end. Right. Let's just be sure there isn't, a, you know. Now, like all laws, it discriminates, right? And so if, 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 if the Equal Protection Clause kind of means what it says, and I'm going to set to one side here, um, uh, and I'm going to put in the show notes a, a talk by Strauss. There's a podcast from the University of Chicago on on kind of textualism and uh, does the constitution mean what it says mm. really interesting little talk oh. and one of the examples is equal protection and and uh, so there's a lot people do with the wording of equal protection like equal protection of the laws is different than all laws must treat everyone equally those are Two perhaps different, different things yeah but d- does our sense that the equal protection clause is more limited than basically banning all laws by saying they all have to treat everyone equally does that really come from the text or is there something beyond the text there that helps us this is a really interesting question but um but at least on its face, this this law discriminates, like all laws discriminate, and so the claim is I'm being treated differently than the dairy milk, uh, than the uh, regular milk uh, producers, um, and that fails in this case, as it should. But not just because, or or even I think not on its face. I've got to go back and look and see if they even mention this. Not just because this is uh, economic regulation, and we're just not going to second guess Congress's judgment on treating these people differently, uh, absent some other reason to be worried about what Congress did. That's what is really interesting in the opinion later, that they actually give some reasons why we might want to be more aggressive in this um, in the context of due process, which then carries over into equal protection. But here's what they say. They say this is is a congressional regulation. Uh, The Equal Protection Clause is in the 14th Amendment, not in the 5th Amendment, right? And so the Equal Protection Clause doesn't even apply. They do say that. Um, And this, of course, is not the law now. No, not after Bowling against Sharp, right? Which is the case decided the same day as Brown against Board of Education, which holds that DC public schools cannot be uh, segregated Uh, under the auspices of the Fifth Amendment, which has no equal protection clause. Right. So I I don't want to spend uh, time on this particular aspect unless you would like to, Joe, because it's certainly not the most important part. This this holding that the Equal Protection Clause does not apply to the federal government is not what people remember Caroline products for. No. Um, but it certainly is interesting, right, that it, as a matter of text, the um, and only text, um, if there is such a thing, and I don't think there is such a thing, but let me assume <laughs> there is for a moment, as a matter of text and only text, the Equal Protection Clause does not, on its face, apply to the federal government. And that was, yeah. not only is that kind of an interesting textual observation, but it was actually part of the holding in this case. Indeed. In, okay. as, in as much as it was a basis for squarely rejecting the assertion that there that there was an unequal treatment that needed to be addressed and scrutinized in a particular right. way. And the court says, not so. We don't do that in this context. 
So you've got your due process argument, which remains. Right. And there, you begin to ask questions like, okay, well, is there a basis for Congress passing such a regulation? Because right. if it were hopelessly irrational, the answer would be, okay, it's an about Just to back an- up, right? It's, it's The claim is no, you know, the... the the constitutional provision is no deprivation of life, liberty, or property without due process, process of law. And these folks are saying, um, this interferes with my liberty to sell filled milk, the product of my choice, You know, my to determine my own economic destiny. This is the product I want to uh, sell. This is the livelihood I want to pursue. And the, the cold, hard fist of the federal government is um, smashing me into the ground by taking away my livelihood. And so uh, my liberty – do they have actually mention liberty of contract in here? What Or do they specify the no, liberty it's, under – it's very I, vague, isn't it? It is because we're at a point in time where the argument has been so made in so many cases and that it's basically become a shorthand Yeah. at this point. We're, we're, you know, Lochner is 33 years in the rearview mirror. Mm-hmm. So people have been making this sort of liberty argument about, uh, you know, I have, a, I have a right to be free of statutory economic regulation. Right. And and the court says no, right, right, and and this is related. I mean, so there are two parts. I mean, the one, the fact that it says no, and we're not going to look, we're not going to think too hard about it either, right? We're not right. going to because it's not our place to think too hard about this, other than to look at the nature of your claim, which is a freedom to be free of economic regulation, which seems to be a matter of careful policy balancing of statutory economic regulation, right? right. Um. Uh. We're not going to think too hard about that because it's not our job. Um, do, what and, do you want to say about that? It's not that we won't think at all. Of course, we will think about it because if Congress, if there were, as the court says, no rational basis, or yeah, if, but, but based this, on everything you knew, there isn't an, a, a rational story that you could imagine to justify the statute, then you then there would be a problem. But, but this that's is, a rather rather significant burden. But this is the case where it becomes clear that what rational basis means is not that we will search to find the reason and evaluate that reason. Correct. What it means is we're basically just going to say the law is okay and rubber stamp it. <laughs> Unless some pathology jumps out at us. Um, and, and that's where the footnote comes in. The most famous footnote in all of constitutional law, right. at least American constitutional law. True. And Now, the sentence to which it is a footnote, is the sentence laying out that thing, that principle you just articulated, which is not that we're going to go looking for the actual rational basis that existed, but rather we're going to sim- we're going to allow ourselves to imagine whether there could be a rational basis. Right. So th- there was an exceptionally low. So let me just read a little language here. Go. Um, uh, it is of such a character as to preclude the assumption that it rests upon some rational basis within the knowledge and experience of the legislators. It, it ha- it, you'd have to, pre- to, to show the law to be invalid, you'd have to preclude that assumption, rule it out, right? that it rests on some rational basis within the knowledge and experience of those people. And the doctrine's later been elaborated to say that what the court does in so-called rational basis cases, these are cases of involving... Well, we'll talk a little bit later, but uh, general economic regulation, all those clearly fall within this. Uh, uh, is there, can, can the court dream up a purpose of this statute which would be legitimate? In other words, not illegitimate, meaning 
what we're going to get into with footnote four, maybe, but not clearly violative of like free speech rights or right. racially discriminatory or one of these other things that would be clearly prohibited. So uh, can we dream up a legitimate purpose of this? It may not even be the one Congress had in mind. We're not even going to try to ask what they actually had in mind. Right. It gonna... decidedly needn't be the one they had right. in mind. Is there one that we can dream up uh, such that the means chosen in the statute are barely rationally related, right, or, to that legitimate purpose that we've dreamed up? The combination of those two things, dreaming up a legitimate purpose and requiring only the flimsiest of rational connections between the means chosen and that purpose, right. mean basically we're going to rubber stamp almost all regulation. Nothing fails rational basis review unless, uh, and we there are a few cases where that has occurred, um, discrimination against the uh, mentally disabled in housing, I think was one, and, um, and the um, since the 80s. Uh, the evaluation of laws that discriminate against gays. Uh, but it's another. A, it is a hard standard to for a person challenging the validity of a statute to 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 meet. It's a it's a hard thing for that challenger to accomplish. And I would say impossible. Just, I would say impossible, except in those cases where what's going on is not really a rational basis. That that could very well be. And what that means is a matter of allocation of power, is the court is allocating to the legislature the principal power over social policy. The the principal forum for deciding what to do, if anything, about the problem of filled milk is the legislature. And when they're done, we're not gonna come in there and wreck around and second guess it. Okay, so let's Well get- if we're not gonna do that, what should we do? All right, yeah. So let's get to the heart of what the famous footnote is all about because the problem has been with the court since the beginning, right? And, and that is that we have this institution called the court, which has to decide cases. Those cases depend on common law. Although as we see after Erie, there basically is no federal common law anymore. No general uh, federal and, common exactly. law. Exactly. Right. And um, uh, so we're going to apply statutes, but we also have this constitution. And sometimes those statutes may appear to conflict with the constitution. What should the court do when it gets a command from the legislature, right? Uh, which seems to conflict with a command from the Constitution as the court interprets it. Right. Well, that was answered in Marbury versus Madison. The court can strike down the statute and declare it to have no effect and then resolve the case in front of it as if the statute did not exist. Right. right? That's the power of judicial review. Uh, that requires an interpretation of the Constitution by the court, which manifestly must be different than the interpretation given to the Constitution by Congress, which felt that it did have the power to pass that right. statute. So then the question uh, becomes, um, under what conditions should the court not defer to Congress? Because if we are going to give up on this project of measuring, you know, if we think of the due process clause as, as measuring laws that interfere with our liberties to do this or that, um, measuring those against some kind of notion of what is a reasonable process or the kind of considerations that are due before doing those things, um, if the court's not going to second guess all of that, but it's going to basically rubber stamp it, should it do that in every case? Like, should it presume that every statute is constitutional and go beyond just presuming that because they do that? Um, but basically not look too deeply into whether the statute conflicts with constitutional values or are there still cases in which the court right. may, in which the court is the main kind of policymaker in the area and will overrule what Congress did? No, I think it's really important to understand the history. It helps me a lot to think about the historical moment that where this is happening. You mentioned one aspect of the historical moment, which is 
you know, dealing with the Great Depression and trying to cope with, find strategies for uh, writing the national economy and in the context of a struggling world economy as well. Um, so that's part of the moment uh, where, it, again, the backdrop against which we're asking this question about when, if ever, should the court scrutinize the, the, the work product of the elected branches of the government. Uh, and the part of the opinion we've talked about so far is, is very much a hands-off. Right. And so maybe, well, should it always be hands-off or is there any place where it would be a bit more intrusive in its re-examination or its, or its scrutiny? Right. And part, another part of the backdrop, because so far what we've said about the opinion is it seems to be um, a theory about, um, you know, day-to-day politics by elected officials will have, of course, winners and losers, the people who want to sell filled milk lost right. in this national debate, uh, the, the, and the people who sell condensed milk won, because yeah. now a cheaper competitor is not going to be available. It's out of the market. Okay, so there's politics, day-to-day politics by elected officials. There will be winners and losers. Um, another part of the backdrop is and I and this isn't mentioned anywhere, but I I firmly believe I'm not an historian. I don't know this to be the case, but I firmly believe it to be the case. So I'd love to know of evidence to the contrary. But I believe you know a big part of this case the just the month before. Okay, this is April 1938, and this case was argued at the beginning of April and decided within 19 days, and a remarkably fast turnaround for a judicial opinion. All right. Mm-hmm. In March of 1938, Hitler annexed Austria, the Anschluss. This was a very significant event in the course of affairs in Europe. So Hitler's been the chancellor of Germany for five years. He annexes Austria. I think people also know he's given the stink eye to the Sudetenland in Czechoslovakia. He wants that too. And he's already talking to them about it. Well, okay, that's also day-to-day politics with winners and losers. So is, you know, part of what's going on in the world scene is sometimes majority rule leads to some sort of scary looking stuff. Right. And I think that's on their mind, too. So you think that explains the footnote? That I don't explains- think it explains it. I think it's energy in the air, right? That politics isn't just about winners and losers over milk. So we're in the middle of this project of unleashing democratic forces to deal with a national economic calamity. Right. And this is another opinion where we're clearly going to do that, right? right? But we have some pause because we recognize, based on our own history, too, right. that at times the court maybe should look more closely at legislative output. And you're saying in the air, too, is this concern about majoritarian power or, yeah. you know, or, or power seized in the name of majoritarianism. Right. Because another, another way to deal with economic calamity is the rise of a fascist leader in a country that had been devastated by its role in the prior world war. I mean, the German economic recovery in the thirties was also significant. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was significant and managed by Hitler. So, (laughs) you know, it's, you've got, there's a bunch of different models for how majority rule can, can produce results. Right. And the sorts of results it produces. I have to believe that's on their mind. Hmm. It's certainly in their newspapers, right? These things are happening in Europe. This so, sort of imperialist, right. expansionist nutball right? Um, who seems to have the broad, massive support of the German people 
in right. a one-party state, admittedly, and maybe not trivially, right? I mean, maybe his support is a byproduct of the fact that he's outlawed other parties. Yeah. But that's, I think that's got to be in their minds. Well, and, and they respond. Uh, I, I shouldn't say they respond because, you, you know, that's hypothesis of a part of what's motivating them. Right. But there is a puzzle out there about what the role of the court should be. That's been around a long because time. Because there seem to be cases, you know, when, you know if, if Congress passed a law um, uh, requiring everybody to swear an oath to the president um, to faithfully follow all the commands of the president, that would seem to violate the First Amendment, right? It seems to be at war with the very idea of the First Amendment. Um, and, and the court would probably, I think the people on the court at this time would have trouble, no trouble saying so. And the question is, what is our basis for doing so if we are otherwise hands off? Um, right. What's our theory? What's our theory of when the court should scrutinize and be a repository for certain principles? What's our, what, what is our, uh, um, what is our mandate in terms of maintaining a limited set of principles which can be used to strike down uh, congressional statutes. Right. What's in that set of tools and what's outside of that set of tools. And clearly they've said in the context of the New Deal, um, the idea about uh, in, about our being the policymakers with respect to individual transactions in the economy, right? That's out the window. We're not going to play that role anymore. Congress can regulate economies or the economy and, and, and the states can regulate economies in the states. But economic regulation is the province of policymaking and we are not going to get into the fine uh, uh, details of redistributive policies or policies meant to provoke, promote economic fairness or to increase economic production. Um, but there are some policies that seem important to us that we seem to be the institution maybe best positioned and foreshadowing a little bit there but or uh otherwise like we're the right institution to do this it's up to us right. maybe the constitution gives us that power but um but not for everything otherwise why even have a legislature if we are the second <laughs> right. legislature right i mean right. uh so footnote four comes in right. as an answer or, or a proposed answer to some of a part of that puzzle yeah it's it's an answer delivered in a funny way and it really in a way that suggests it isn't it wasn't intended as an answer it was intended it would seem as a um a, a, a series of possibilities because it's phrased as we now for this case the case we're in right now with this filled milk we don't actually need to settle the question of blah and then it's and the way it phrases the question that we don't need to settle is these possibilities right here are theories that might allow us to scrutinize the res the outputs of day-to-day -day politics in the elected branches yeah and the and it's what's interesting is those the list of reasons why you could question them and in what they seem to amount to in many important respects is dysfunctions outputs that show dysfunctions in the political process itself. All right, let's see, let's just get these on the table. There are three three paragraphs here, right? Right. Uh the first one is about and, and I'll have you you've got the text and in Justice front of you, Stone don't you? wrote only two of them. Is that right? Yes. The third one was suggested to him by the Chief Justice. Um uh the f the very first paragraph in the footnote is not Justice Stone's theory. Justice Stone's theory isn't the second and third paragraphs. Of oh, the and those are the more interesting ones. They are. Now, Louis Lusky, who was a clerk of Stone's at the time and later became a law professor uh, at Yale, um, wrote an article, I think it was in the early 70s, sort of talking about footnote four. 
Mm-hmm. And he reveals the things that were going on in chambers at the time with public court oh, papers yeah, that had become that. public. Yeah. So what, what, with that first paragraph, just to get it on the table, and you've got the text in front yeah. of you, I know, but it covers, it says, you know, we would depart from this... Uh, uh, the presumption of constitutionality. We would depart from it. When uh, when, when specific prohibitions in the, Consti- in the Bill of Rights are violated, right? Yeah, when the legislation appears on its face to be a violation of one of those specific enumerated prohibitions on the on the congress right and the problem with that first this is if, if it were just that paragraph there would be no excellence in this opinion at all i think Indeed. because it because <laughs> that's the very problem we're trying to solve yes right in all of these cases there is an alleged violation of constitutional right. rights and mostly in the bill of rights even in this case right, right. there was the structural charge about the commerce clause right. but there was also a due process violation so it would be a rare it would be a rare case where the violation is so palpable on its face that you could very easily say, oh, wow, Congress, poof, you really blew past that, that Third Amendment or Fourth Amendment. Or fi- so, but but it, would, it would be no case because you would still have to have a criterion, right, uh, well, of palpability, <laughs> right? Well, right. I mean, but, and so you're assuming this is sort of a, right, there's a core and a penumbra sort of idea where there, there would be there – w- there is a class of cases where it would be uh, – everyone's recognition of the problem would be so instantaneous, they wouldn't realize they had applied a criterion. Um, And and that's going to be a small set of cases. So the more interesting cases would be where you have to slow down and you actually realize you're applying a criterion, and now this note isn't helping you. Yeah, I would even say it's conceptually an empty set without without an assumed criterion for judicial intervention, right? I mean, what you're saying is that there is a set of cases where the violation of the constitutional right is like, let's take the First Amendment, uh, uh, search and seizure, whichever, is so, um, there's such universal agreement that it violates that right that we think the court's ratification of that universal agreement is not really applying judicial scrutiny at all. But in fact, it is, that's a, just a, it's a method, right? Whatever right. the reason is that creates that universal agreement must be adopted by the court in order to do that thing. And maybe it's one that we would all agree to, but it needs to be stated. So there's nothing in that. My point is that there's nothing in that first paragraph. But there have been, well, but there have been, there have been, uh, first of all, the the paragraph does cite some cases. So maybe if we went and looked at those cases, we would see examples. I don't know. I haven't looked at them. Mm -hmm. Um, But but further, I mean, there are historical examples that are acknowledged to be those sorts of – the Alien and Sedition Act signed by President Adams is acknowledged to be a quite ferocious violation of the First Amendment. Right. Which was not adjudicated. Right. And usually when when you state a principle and you say we we don't mean by this to impugn uh, the fact that we have a – freer hand to do blah 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 in these cases and then you cite cases you're just trying to say we're not overruling those cases um and again i haven't looked at those either so i'm not going to comment on it you know whether you go back and you look at the reasoning of those cases and it engages in more scrutiny or or what so let's leave that to one side just note that there's there's kind of a this first paragraph isn't what footnote four is famous for I right. think that's right. Um, because it doesn't, it, and it, doesn't it restates per- the question to be asked. And it doesn't fit particularly well with the second and third paragraphs for that reason. Okay, so let's get those on the table, Joe. What's the, what's, what's the second paragraph and what, and what do you particularly like about it? You don't have to read it, but you can summarize it if you well, want. Well, it's, I mean, it's hard to improve on. Okay, then, then um, read it. Should I just read it? Yeah, go. Okay. The second and third paragraphs also cite cases, but I'm going to read it without cite those citations. Please. I'm just going to read the text of the second and third paragraphs. Please. So there's sort of an overall theory here. Uh, it is unnecessary to consider now 
once again, I, we don't need to worry about this now, but I'm going to talk about it for a while, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is right. an interesting strategy, right? Right. Um, to to put raise put something on the table for future consideration. It is unnecessary to consider now whether legislation which restricts those political processes, which can ordinarily be expected to bring about repeal of undesirable legislation, is to be subjected to more exacting judicial scrutiny under the general prohibitions of the 14th Amendment than are most types of legislation. And then, and it lists some examples on restrictions upon the right to vote, right? On restraints upon the dissemination of information. That one's especially interesting, right? In terms of its role in the political process. On interferences with political organizations. As to prohibition of peaceable assembly. Yeah. Right. So, so the theory seems to be in this paragraph, um, yeah, politics has winners and losers. Um, the same body politic might come to regret the way it had allocated things before, and it might want to change its mind. And that's normally the way we get rid of bad laws, not by coming to court and trying to win in court what you lost in Congress. Right. But, but instead, by continuing to engage with your fellow citizens so that a future Congress undoes the mistake of a prior Congress. That's right. the way politics should – this is the model, right? That's how politics should work. And therefore, what we would need to scrutinize are attempts to short-circuit that mechanism. Right. To keep it from actually operating. Preventing the people from talking, preventing them from organizing. Preventing them from um, voting. Putting in place uh, laws that advantage incumbents. Um, doing things that prevent that electoral check mechanism from working, right? So this right. is a... So, so what the court is, what what this footnote is is saying so far, and I think the third paragraph essentially does the same thing, is it's saying you know ma- majoritarianism and self government by the people living today is going to be the default mode of operation for our government, right? including when it makes mistakes. You don't like something, you vote the bums out, right. and you get and you get your way, or you assemble and you demand things, right? And they are responsive to you because they're fearful that they will be voted out. That's the normal mode of operation. We are going to get. We are not going to get involved to pick winners and losers in those struggles. But we are going to get involved to make sure that the fight is a fair one. In other words, we are not going to allow the people who happen to have control over the reins of government. Uh, we're uh, we're not going to allow those people to use that power um, to preserve their own power. Right? We're not going to allow them to short circuit, as you say. Uh, uh, the the very um, the very things that make self government majoritarianism work. Now that's I think I'm paraphrasing and I'm not improving on the text, but right. the text is very nice rhetoric there. And the interesting thing is whether it has some bite. Uh, right. uh, and, no. But at least it's a theory, right? It's a theory of when democracy fails, and when democracy fails, we're not left to the wolves. The framers and our whole system of government has like a safety valve. So it's almost like a safety valve theory yeah. of democracy. The third paragraph um, is, as you say, structurally similar. Um, and it talks about another uh, context or, or multiple contexts where we would have the same concern about the uh, discombobulation of the, ele- of p- the political process itself as a way to figure out what to do socially, right? Uh, nor need we inquire whether similar considerations enter into the review of statutes directed at particular religious, national, uh, or racial minorities. 
Whether prejudice against discrete and insular minorities may be a special condition which tends seriously to curtail the operation of those political processes ordinarily to be relied upon to protect minorities, and which may call for a correspondingly more searching judicial inquiry. Fascinating. Yeah, I mean, this is... This Lots is, of citations of cases that people can go look at if if they want to figure out more about what this theory is suggesting, right? But the theory itself is sort of laid out in a very elegant way, I think, uh, in a very compressed way, but in a very elegant way. So, yeah, the idea is majoritarianism works, and this is just the idea that whatever the majority wants, it can get, right? Seems a, like a pretty fair allocation in society for the most part, right? Because maybe I want something really badly, but most people want something else. And guess what? I'm going to lose on that. But maybe on another issue, right? I'll get my preferences. And maybe if I care a lot about something, I can go to you and say, you know, I care a lot about this. You support me on this and I'll support you on something else, right? right. So there are various ways that people protect themselves in the political process on things that they care a whole lot about. Um, that involve, you know, interaction in society. Yeah. Um, when is that going to fail? When is democracy going to descend into Plato's caricature of it as ruled by the mob? Right. Right. And, you know, which is one of the reasons he hated democracy or, you know, that he wrote about the, the problems of democracy. Right. Um, and, and, and why he supported like philosopher Kings. Right. <laughs> and our system, it's interesting, right? Because it, the, at least this footnote recognizes a reason for a separation of powers that combines, you know, I don't, it combines the idea of the philosopher king and the democracy, right? Because the philosopher kings don't have power for the most part, but they can stop an unruly mob. Um, that, there's something about that in, in this part of footnote four, because what's, what, what the court is saying is that in, in addition to people getting a hold of power and then defeating uh, the very idea of majoritarianism by extinguishing speech and, and discriminating and voting and doing everything else it can to, to keep power, another way that it can fail is that the majority can really, you know, it can be in power. The government can be responding to the wants of the majority, but those wants could be to steal a bunch of stuff from a minority, right? To uh, uh, disregard a minority's rights, maybe to degrade it for its own psychological well-being, to establish a caste system. Yeah, uh, and this is an interesting connection to um, uh, Curtis's uh, dissent in Plessy. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the the notion there isn't any caste here. Oh, Harlan's. Har- excuse me, Harlan's dissent in, uh, mm-hmm. my apologies, uh, his dissent in Plessy. Um, you know, there aren't castes here. Right. Um, that there's an, there's a, an important day-to-day electoral politics as an engine of social policy point there as well. Right. right? Because tomorrow's loser is someone who I might be in a coalition with, excuse me, yesterday's loser might be in a coalition with me tomorrow on a different or related issue and right. be a winner. And so the, again, the, the tussle, the constant back and forth, if, if, a temporary majority can create a pariah status and lock someone into it. It prevents the operation of day-to-day politics now with that group because they've basically been turned into people outside the law, outside the legal process. Uh, And that too is another short circuiting. So whether it's, you know, as the court mentioned specifically in its uh, its set of uh, things here, religious, national, 
or racial minorities. So it's a quite, um, and of course, you know, what does everyone know? Another thing everyone knows at this point in the court uh, is that the biggest single example in U.S. history and that currently exists at the time as this opinion is being written and published um, is the system of legally enforced white supremacy known as Jim Crow in the American South, um, which tries to and did um, create a a second-class sort of almost untouchables pariah status for black people. And that, and that, what the court's describing is that that is a profound perversion and short circuiting of an electoral process, a political process that can have good laws and bad laws and get change over time as people's preferences change and all sorts of other things of the normal operation. Of the way I talk systems. about this case is is um, uh, or one one of the ways that I talk to students about it is that um, so what is the role of the discrete and insular minority part? Right. I mean, it's it may not be the court's place um, because, after all, the filled milk producers were losers in the political system here. Right. In the political process, they were a minority right. uh, who were beaten in the political process. In this debate. Correct. Um, and in this debate. Um, and if you took away the power of people who make or want to make filled milk, if you took away their power to vote. You would make it harder for them to undo that loss later. Right. Right. Um, that's paragraph two, I guess. Right. Um, paragraph three, right. If, if, if instead of taking away filled milk producer votes, if you found like, oh, it looks like most of the filled milk producers are this sort of person, right. right? Maybe I could create a caste system where I'm, you know, it's one the of the filled things, milk cast. I'm liking this. One, one of the things I'll achieve is. I will make it harder for them to get into that business and others too, because right. those are the businesses they tend to run. Yeah. So I, I, I usually think of it as, uh, um, as a grounds, as, as a ground for the court, uh, to get involved in scrutiny when it detects that a majority has picked out a minority, an identifiable minority, which will be made repeat losers in the political process, right? It's, it's expropriating, like struck. Yeah. So there'll be a continued expropriation from this group, either by just ignoring their needs entirely or by actively stealing from them, you know, and, um, you know, by directing resources away from that, uh, repeat loser in the political process. So that's, it's very important that it's not just majority is winning over minority because that's majoritarianism, Happens right? All the time. Right. But What's being pointed out here is a failure in that majoritarian process where we have a uh, – where all those usual ways that one protects oneself in the political system by accepting losses sometimes and being a winner other times by forming coalitions and getting your way, that can fail when the majority, for whatever reason, has decided to pick out a repeat loser. And this um, – I think this approach spawned the suspect class understanding – uh, which informs the equal protection clause, right? And um, and and some it's used elsewhere too. But uh, and the idea here is we're gonna have we're gonna have certain categories of people uh, such that when a law appears to take an aim at that class, we're gonna be suspicious as a court, right? Because 
Laws that do that appear to reinforce this um, subservient position of that class and have this feature that it appears not to be a well-functioning democracy in action, but the rule of the mob, Plato's rule of the mob, right? And so here's where we're going to put on our philosopher king hats, right? And scrutinize the law more closely and see if there's a principle consistent with some other purpose, right? Other than to expropriate from a repeat loser in the political process. If we can detect something, then we might uphold the law. Otherwise, we are going to be, we're going to, after having played philosopher, now we're going to play king and we're going to strike down this law, right? Uh, and so the, the way this works in doctrine is that when, uh, or, or the way that it was, I think, it t- intended to work in doctrine, and it has been transmogrified, <laughs> but the way it was intended to work is when a law uh, aims at a political minority, and that political minority is uh, uh, turns out to be a class that we think is discrete and insular, meaning that it's a repeat loser in the political processes and, and is identifiable. You know, the reason it would be a repeat loser is because it is discrete and insular. In other words, it doesn't make attachments and do this thing where it right. uh, it can. But the interact law with itself others. might be the re- the law itself that's being challenged might be the very thing that's turning it into a repeat loser, right? Or 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 a part of that, like Jim Crow, right? All, all and so if we detect that, then. We're going to use, instead of rational basis review, the Caroline Products Standard, we might use what's called strict scrutiny. There is one other category, intermediate scrutiny, but let's skip right. over that into strict scrutiny, right? And here we're going to say, okay, you can do this, but because the danger is so high that you're doing something which conflicts with the best conceptions of democracy, right, that, that would break democracy and turn it from something which returns the public good and enables self-government into something which is basically stealing conceptions of democracy that are enshrined in other parts of this same document right right Right. there the the constitution is a document that creates a set of structures and then says go right right go engage in day-to-day politics called self-government right so it's important that this this conception of democracy is not being created out of the air right uh it's actually embodied in positive law in this thing. And among other places in the Equal Protection Clause, right? The equal protection of the laws may mean, or one meaning you may give it, is that every every person has a right not to be treated as a repeat loser in the system, a source of gain for the majority, right? right. That uh, A right not to be on the receiving end of an unruly, democratically elected mob. Um, and so if we detect that you are in that kind of class and you're targeted by a law, uh, then we are very suspicious. Not that necessarily that such a law couldn't be consistent with uh, the better versions of democracy, but we're going to look and make sure that the government has a truly compelling interest. And we're not going to dream one up. Government, you tell us what your interest is. Right. We'll tell you whether it's compelling. Right. Because we need to know the actual one. Right. Because the- we need to assess the means and fit. And the and the end's legitimacy itself. Well, and, and it, not just its legitimacy, but it, the degree to which it is compelling. It can be totally <laughs> legitimate, but it's got to be super important. Right. It's so, got to be super important, and the means chosen, the the, the 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 disadvantage you've visited upon this person in this class, that as a part of the means for doing this very compelling thing, that has to like hit the bullseye. It has right. to be like those means have to be narrowly tailored to achieving this compelling governmental purpose. Now, that's the doctrinal framework, which I think grows out of this portion of footnote four. I mean, it, I think it's best justification for the so-called levels of scrutiny, which which are the 
essentially like the analytical tools the court uses to analyze cases. Does it provide at the lowest level rational basis and at the highest level strict scrutiny? And switching from rational basis to strict scrutiny turns in great measure on whether we are in one of these categories, either in the second paragraph of footnote four or in the third paragraph of footnote four. I say that's been transmogrified, I mean, you know, uh, because some somewhere along the line, we switched from allowing membership in a suspect class, like targeted for disadvantage as a member of a suspect class, as a reason to make us suspicious. Uh, and I was taught, this was the approach taken by Judd Rubenfeld when he taught me uh, constitutional law, and it has really stuck with me, uh, to a suspect classificationist view. In other words, just... A law which makes a distinction, which is a which is in one of these kind of classifications, is subject to scrutiny, and this makes all the difference in the world, because a law that singles out African Americans in a majority white area for say some advantage in order to erase the going all the way back the badges of slavery, but more to overcome the disadvantages visited upon them for. over a century and and most recently, you know, up until uh, the end of Jim Crow, uh, we're going to set aside a certain number of jobs or we're going to provide a certain amount of additional training or whatever it is to overcome the wrongs that we did. No one is suspicious in that circumstance that what's going on is the is is advantaging that. Well, I should say no one. There is one theory, uh, but uh, I am not suspicious that the uh, use of such laws is in order for a mob to steal from that class of people, African-Americans right. in that Yeah, you example. don't have a majority trying to create a, per- right. a group of permanent losers. Right. You actually have a majority trying to um, benefit for a, for a reason in this instance rooted in his- historical experience and historical events, right. um, trying to um, provide assistance and support. Right to what had been a group of permanent losers, and now isn't desired to be such anymore. To connect by it the ba- majority itself. To connect it back to our discussion of uh, uh, of Plessy, uh, Harlan's dissent in Plessy. Footnote four justifies judicial intervention to prevent the creation by majorities of caste systems. Right. It does not. It does not justify the court enforcing a pure colorblind mentality Correct. for its own sake right? right because it it's not that theory it's not that theory it's not that theory and, and uh, i think the footnote four theory is a much richer theory because as night and you can you can and people have critiqued its view of of, of electoral politics as being too naive by right some ardent chair political scientists who need to do a lot more reading and research and you know fair enough that may be but um but even so i think it's a much richer understanding of what's important and what dynamics are at play and what you need to be on the lookout for for a healthy body politic well so it does have problems and i don't know if we want to get into i i want to kind of you know i i want to first of all just to um get out here in the show what makes footnote four so important for the first time it's really a theory of when the courts should be um uh, very deferential to Congress and when the courts should not. And so right. it defines in a somewhat fuzzy way, but at least it attempts to define that area of policymaking, which is for the courts and that which is for the legislature. Right. Um, and it and it sounds in a structural theory of government in order to make democracy function in a particular way. Right. Um, 
but does it really work? And that's uh, <laughs> right. That's, that's <laughs> your the mileage question. may vary. I mean, some people think it works. It works well and can point to instances. I mean, it, you know, the David Strauss piece says, look, the one person, one vote and state legislative reapportionment is entirely about footnote four. Like without footnote four, you just wouldn't reach those holdings. Right. And those were have been strikingly successful and very important changes in, in American life. Right. Um, uh, other people can critique and say, no, it doesn't help you get where you need to go or it gets you to go to strange places. Or blah, blah, blah. Well, one you know, example of that. That can be true. Yeah. One right? example of that, not getting where the, you need to go, is that um, it may well be the case that a truly discreet and insular minority right, may have the best chance to organize politically. Right. Because right. it has the most uh, – this is the public choice theory of – politics right so they are able to uh raise they're able to raise funds among themselves more easily they're able to uh foster and and enforce a greater sense of shared mission and so um you know and, and so one example is uh is african americans right which uh, who organized very effectively right um now they were still on the receiving end especially of of white dominated and especially southern legislator legislatures in the uh in the jim crow era uh, and so that, but that, as that organization, you know, we're not going to get into the history of, of, right. you know, Jim Crow and civil rights movement, but it's certainly questionable whether, um, they, uh, um, uh, the, what exactly it is that makes it difficult for African Americans at that time and maybe even now to protect themselves in the political process are, are gays, discreet and so minorities right. deserving of strict scrutiny when it comes, say, to, uh, anti-marriage laws. Do are are gays a discreet and insular minority? They're unable to protect themselves in the political process, and indeed, a lot of what we're seeing is them protecting themselves in the political process and people coming around. And, and what I think is, um, in the context of the answer to the question, Joe, what is your favorite case? What what is <laughs> remarkable about uh, about all of that um, isn't that the conversation's coming out to a particular resolution. It's that we're having the debate in a house. This footnote built. Right. And that's amazing. It's remarkable. You know what I think? Remarkable achievement. You know what I think? What? I think that the criticism of footnote four comes from a place uh, that, uh, or comes from um, an understanding that thinks that, that judicial action needs to be justified rationally and analytically and grounded in text or grounded in text-like stuff, right? In other words, that some text-like stuff needs to, uh, or at least a, even if, that's why I say, even just a theory, which is grounded in democracy more generally, needs to imply almost as a matter of logic what the court can and cannot do. And so the fact that footnote four appears to be, or might be over-inclusive, in other words, some groups might, under that theory, because they're discrete and some minorities, be deserving of protection, and yet they don't seem to be losers in the political process. And so it doesn't seem to pick out very well all the time. No one's come up with a better theory, as Strauss points out, right, uh, that that can explain what we want the court to do. Uh, and I think one of the reasons for that is because the court's activity is inherently political. And what I mean by that is not, you know, it's, it's partly kind of, um, uh, Balkan's high politics concept and, and partly some other stuff, but um, that the reason it seems totally appropriate for the court to dismantle racial discrimination and Jim Crow um, does, for me, come a little bit from footnote four, but 
footnote four justifies, again, a kind of limited nature and canalized activity, a political activity by the court. In other words, the court's decision to step in and protect uh, women under the Equal Protection Clause. Using, they use intermediate scrutiny, some think it should be strict scrutiny. I think it should be strict scrutiny. When, but uh, that is a, a, a policy question which grows out of principles in the, uh, in the Constitution, right? Um, and the question of how well they can protect themselves and whether democracy is good, doing a good job in that respect, I think it's an ultimately political one. And we just have to understand that the court is engaging in a kind of political decision-making with respect to these questions. Another example are, uh, are gays, right? So do gays get just rational basis review when they are targeted by laws, or should we use strict scrutiny? If you treat that as a question which must have a right or wrong answer, then you're going to insist on a principle which yields a, a clear answer. And is footnote four that theory? Well, then you're going to have to say, well, are gays really a discreet and insular minority? And, you, and I think the answer to that these days is, at one point, the answer was probably yes. These days, the answer is probably no. Um, would the court be justified in striking down um, anti-equal uh, marriage laws uh, under discreet and insular minority theory? Uh, maybe not. But what I think that the principle does is it, is it gives the court the political room to figure out how it can help best achieve the proper functioning of democracy, right. how it can open the channels of these things, right? Yep. And, and it understands that that may, call, that may call for forbearance sometimes to allow the political machine to, you know, the, the machines of democracy to kind of work this junk through its system and come to a decision on its own. And other times it may call for the court to ratify what seems to be an emerging consensus. And other times it may call for the court to lead. Right. But I think that, and, and certainly with respect to the right categories, you know, I mean, with equal protection, you know, another despised minorities we've said on here before are murderers, you know, child <laughs> molesters, right. uh, uh, people who commit assault, right. These are despised minorities. Um, and yet we don't expect the court to vindicate their rights. Right, they can't protect child molesters. Can't protect themselves in the political system. It's actually an interesting example because of the because of the uh, the, the registration laws, which actually may zone them out into homelessness in some areas. Right. So people who have served their time who are child maybe. No. The- so what? I, well, let me let me just finish one one thing, Joe. So so what I think is a political one political decision here is the decision that the court makes about which groups are among the the community of equals. As I've said it before, right and. And for a long time, gays were not thought to be a part of the community of equals, at least along the dimension of sexuality and gender. But I think there's an emerging consensus, or there was, and now it's a full-blown consensus, that gays are part of the community of equals. And the, the court, and I think that's a political decision, right? It, it, and it's a political decision which I think is, there is a moral answer and an immoral answer, Right? But it's not something you're necessarily going to deduce from the fabric of the universe or from any incontrovertible theory. And that footnote four frees up the court to make that kind of political decision on a, for a, a, under the management of a certain kind of principle about its role in doing things that only the court can do really well. I don't know if I've said that very well, but uh, I, I'm trying to capture the idea that, that the problems people see in footnote four are derive from a desire to see it 
operate in an analytically rigorous way that deprives the court of political decision-making, which I think is a failed understanding of the court's role. Yes, I agree with that. Uh, And a different way to say what may be the same idea is um, that, yeah, I I don't think footnote four was an effort to build a watch. Right, yeah. Uh, It was an effort to highlight possibilities that are already partly in the court's experience by that point, but that aren't limited by that experience. Now, the words used to try to highlight it are, are may fall short or may overshoot the mark um, for just that reason, right? It's not, try- it, 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 it doesn't know what tomorrow will bring. Um, but if you don't go to it expecting to get handed a watch, right? A mechanical thing that gives you answers by, by a mechanism, yeah. Then you wouldn't be upset, right? You wouldn't you weren't expecting a watch, you didn't get a watch. Right. Fair enough. <laughs> but if I wanted a watch and it's, you hand me footnote 4 and I'm like, dude, it's not a watch. Um, well, <laughs> I don't know what to do next. Yeah, I, right. Well, okay, yeah, we're we're in a, we're at a bit of a disconnect now. Right. That's not what I was trying to give you. Not what I was trying to do. Um you know, I, I but sort of returning to the the, the super question, uh, the super arching question that got all this started is, you know, uh, to me, this is just, this along with Erie, sort of in this, on this day, this court, these people taking a hard look at how they want to lay out an approach to the court's role as an institution in a legal system with these characteristics, I think these two opinions, especially taken together, are a, they're a huge turning point for the court and the country because the court is a big part of the country's governing structure. Um, and I think they're achievements that have proved to be remarkably durable and positive. Yeah. Yeah. Great choice. This is a great choice, Joe. Cool. You know, I, and, and talking about this is I, I, a little bit difficult. I feel like um, if people use uh, Overcast to listen to this and they turn on Smart Speed, they'll be, it'll be half as long. <laughs> Cut out all of our pauses. <laughs> Good point. Uh, I do encourage uh, Smart Speed for this show. Don't I'm just me? trying to speak carefully because I, I, I agree. I do too. Complicated and, ideas. I do too. And I fail at it. You speak carefully, and you usually make sense. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I, it's, uh, I think it's a great choice because it is, um, it's one of those cases where the court is trying to ground its own legitimacy. It's saying, look, there's, we've got a problem here, uh, with what our role is. Um, uh, Marbury versus Madison established, we do a certain kind of thing, which is occasionally overruling the legislature. Um, we could do that all the time, or we could do that none of the time or some of the time. But you know what? We've got no principle that we've ever articulated that's really told us what if we're going to do it some of the time, what those some of the times uh, are, right? And and they provide they provide a structural, a very I think advanced, complex idea about structure um, to do that. And again, in paragraphs two and three, yeah, uh, paragraphs one could undermine the whole project if read in the wrong way. But uh, in two and three, and that's it's 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 uh, in that way it's. 
it's remarkable because, you know, uh, another conception of this whole thing would be that the court should just decide cases. And it's kind of up to the um, to scholars and commentators to deduce principles and write about them. And then the, in a kind of reflective equilibrium among scholars, judges and the bar, you know, it keeps courts within a certain kind of channel of activity where they, you know, so that some of the time is defined not just by a, a, a principle expounded by the court, but by kind of what's in the air by virtue of all the ideas that are coming from all quarters. And yet here we have the court kind of putting a stake in the ground saying, here's the kind of thing we're thinking about. Here's our conception of American democracy and our role within it. Um, It's not fully worked out. It's a footnote. Uh, We're saying this may be, you know, maybe this time, maybe that time. Um, But in here is an important principle, which we expect to endure. And from this grew um, you know, the dismantling of Jim Crow, Brown versus Board, um, the protection of certain kinds of privacy right, the loosening of um, the regulation of economic uh, freedoms, which, and, you know, that's part of a continuing dialogue. And some yeah. people think we took a wrong turn there, and we'll probably talk about this on another show. But I find it remarkable for all those, for all those reasons. So I think it's a great choice. Yay. What else we got to talk about, Joe? I think we're done. I think we're done for today. Yeah, Arsenal's about to play. Cool. I got, I got to go. I got to go. Listener David, by the way, he's getting ready for that too, I'm pretty sure. Nice. Whoa. Darcy also thinks we should conclude.